0: You can't complain much if you don't take part in the process, it seems to me. And I wish everyone would do that and get out there. And, again, people having fought and died for this right around the world, and they still are doing that, fighting and dying for that right, makes it all the more important to us, I think. As that sounds romantic, I'm romantic.
1: From the WOUB Newsroom, this is 457SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our southeast Ohio communities. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Atish Baidia.
2: I'm Susan Tevin.
1: And
3: I'm Allison Hunter. While May elections can be dominated by local issues and uncontested races, this primary season that is upon us right now, here in Ohio, is being described by some analysts as chaotic, quirky, and dire. So we're going to do what we do in these situations, bring in a trusted perspective. Thomas Suttis, Ph.D., Ohio political analyst, member of the Cleveland Plain Dealers editorial board, and journalism professor is here with us. And we're going to ask you about party infighting, the one statewide ballot issue, of course. But let's start off with the top of every county's ticket, the governor and lieutenant governor's race what is it, six Democratic mm-hmm. uh, Party candidates or tickets, um, two on the Republican side, and then one Green Party candidate. And what's going to happen? And who's going to be a friend to Southeast Ohio? And what does uh, Trump have to do with it, all, with it all? And what do you think?
0: Well, that's a, a, an all-encompassing question, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but it's an interesting one, and it's on point. Uh, we have a it's a real, real boisterous competition in both parties for the nomination for governor. As you mentioned uh, before, Republicans have uh, a contest between Attorney General Mike DeWine of Greene County, and Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor of Summit County uh, for the nomination of the GOP, and that is dominated by basically a contest to see which of them is more conservative, and with all due respect, I think that's a difficult question to answer uh, because they both have many similarities. On the Democratic side of the ticket, of the ticket of the ballot, rather, you have four sets of candidates, that is to say running mates with each person running for governor. Uh, that is to say former Attorney General Mike, uh, former Attorney General Richard Cordray of suburban Columbus, um, Judge Joseph, or Senator Joseph Schiavone of Youngstown, uh, Judge Bill, Bill O'Neill or- of the Ohio Supreme Court, and, of course, former Cleveland Mayor Dennis Kucinich. And I think it's fair to say that although Senator Schiavone gotten good marks, uh, he's a younger person and is not considered to be likely to be a finalist in this contest. And Judge O'Neill is an uh, interesting personality to his own, uh, in his own way, but basically it's become a race between on that side, on the one hand, Attorney General Cordray, former Attorney General Cordray, and, uh, and former Mayor of Cleveland uh, Dennis Kucinich. And I think it's... Uh, In some respects, as Kyle Kondik of uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball recently said, you can argue it's a proxy contest among Democrats who supported, say, for example, um, former Secretary of State Clinton for the nomination last time, and who supported Senator Sanders of Vermont the last time for the nomination for the presidency, with uh, Mr. Kucinich representing kind of a Sanders wing of the uh, Democratic Party, um, and uh, Mr. Cordray the Clintonian, or the Obamian, you could say, wing of the party. And uh, that's interesting. I think it's... um, We here in Southeast Ohio should remember that uh, in 1982, not long after Cleveland's default and uh, Mayor Kucinich's defeat at the hands of George Warnovich from Mayor of Cleveland, uh, Mr. Kucinich ran for Secretary of State of Ohio on the Democratic ticket, and actually, among other counties, carried Athens County, but some other ones as well against Jared Brown, who won the nomination eventually. So over the years, uh, Mr. Kucinich has had lots and lots of lives, and he's come back time and again from what was seen as uh, obscurity or defeat or... um, uh, electoral vanquishness, including going on to Congress in the U.S. House. Um, it's difficult to say because, on the one hand, you have a whip-snorting, uh, kind of old-fashioned, and butter Democrat, I'm not saying it's old-fashioned, meaning antique, but old-style, Mr. Kucinich. On the other hand, um, Attorney General Cordray, as you may know, has got a significantly positive rating from the National Rifle Association. He opposes uh, most limits on gun ownership, maybe all of them for all I know. And uh, that's a different kind of Democrat, but may work very well in parts of the state that have been traditionally somewhat averse to what they see as liberalism among Democrats. Um, I think um, I'm torn between thinking it's gonna be a close race and thinking it's gonna be a runaway race or one or the other, because it, primaries are unusual. Primaries tend to draw a party's most well-committed members, I think, to the balls. And that means polarization sometimes between the two sides of any given political discussion. It's interesting and complicated and dramatic
3: and I just want to give a moment and a shout out to two of the names that are on the Democratic ticket also that many people may not have heard of. Uh, there's, uh, They'll say they're regular citizens and I'll give them the activist title because they've chose to run. But Paul Ely, I think he's from Alliance. And, yes. um, and then... Uh, I can't think of uh, Larry's last name, but his uh, he's up from Trotwood, Ohio, right outside of Dayton. And his uh, campaign website is lusciouslarryforgovernor.org because he used to be a—at um, what point in his life he was a— um, a male stripper he was, he was a stripper. An, exotic an exotic dancer excuse oh. me and just as a side note I thought it was interesting how um, some some headlines about his candidacy he ran once before and maybe had some outside views and all of that but the the headlines uh, seemed a bit dismissive former exotic dancer unemployed exotic dancer was running for governor like Wow, that's interesting. That works on both sides. If it's male or female, it's the idea of the of the position. But I digress.
0: So, Well, you can make the case that politics and entertainment, in one sense, being an exotic dancer might be a very good things way you, to be uh, on the platform.
3: Things you do for money. So, well, yeah, that's true. But, okay, so... Oh, wait. No, that's Paul Ray and Larry Ely. Those are the two candidates. And the Green Party candidate is Constance Goodell-Newton. So just want to get that part straight. Names that, you know, we don't always know. With um, with Cordray and, and well, interesting, i we'll go back to actually uh, Kucinich. And you described him as a kind of a bread and butter Democrat. He's a name that's certainly known. Um, and, but... He's shown some support or has said some things that has made some look at him like, wait a minute. And then going back to kind of my first question, what's Trump have to do with this election? And then also bringing in um, the Syrian uh, leaders. So Kucinich seems to be and have some be somewhat on the out. Some as my father used to say, bit of an outside player, <laughs>
0: Well, that's true, that's true. I think uh, he would be the, and uh, everyone's neighborhood, is a nonconformist maybe, a neighbor who's a good neighbor otherwise, but they're a little bit different. Uh, I think you mentioned several things that are very salient to this discussion about uh, the former mayor, one of which, of course, is, uh, is he has said, at times, I gather, I have read only the transcripts, uh, fairly positive things about President Trump on some issues, on some issues. Um, secondly, he has said, if not affirmative things about, Bashar al-Assad, the, uh, I would say, my opinion, murderous leader of Syria. Um, but I have to say this, and I think this gets misunderstood to some extent by people in Downstate Ohio and around the country. First of all, Northern Ohio has a significant number of people, uh, and include Toledo, Youngstown, Akron, Cleveland, who are from the Middle East ancestrally. They have family, relatives, kin, cousins, ancestors in um, Syria, uh, in Palestine, in Israel, and in uh, Lebanon. And that's number one. Number two, some of them are Muslim tradition, others are Christian tradition. One can make the case, I'm not going to make that case today because it would take another program, maybe another station, that our Middle East policy as a country has been somewhat muddled for a long time, at a minimum. And I think that um, even, I believe, President Obama hesitated to go ahead with bombing a few years ago against the Assad regime. And right now we're seeing people concerned about maybe the end of the Iranian deal with our country about uh, nuclear weaponry. So the area is unsettled, and I think it is a little bit um, unfair to assume somehow that uh, because Kucinich has spoken out as he has, that he's automatically for the kinds of horrific things that the Assad regime has been accused, in fact, has been found to have done. But that is, in fact, an interesting point, because people are understandably horrified by the idea of people using uh, chemical warfare, especially against innocent um, noncombatants. That's redundant. Noncombatants are innocent ipso facto. That's part of it. Um, but I also think this, and I, this is a, both a good thing and a bad thing about recent American history. I think we've all shown, as a people, a tendency to want politicians to push the limits somewhat rhetorically, and certainly the president's an example of that. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it's a fact of life. And to that extent, Dennis Kucinich has always done that, kind of pushed the envelope a little bit rhetorically and so forth about issues that confront, um, confront the state and the region. Um, you also mentioned something else. There have been times in his history where he has been a, uh, an aficionado of alternative medicine, of alternative spirituality, and of alternative nutrition. And those things are, to some extent, things individually, all kinds of Ohioans themselves may individually share it in their own lives. You know, we're, we're, we as a people, as humankind, are contradictory. We, want, we say that we don't want our office holes to be like blocks of Belvita cheese, you know, homogenous and bland and whatever. We process something or other, but then when they don't tend to be that way, we tend to say, "Oh, they're acting outside the parameters of how they should be acting." So, I don't know about the other people at this desk today, but I think a little bit of liveliness would be good for Ohio politics, and not just the usual, like I said, MBA class or something economic development. But that's me. And again, the people would decide all oh, this at the election. But that's my perspective. But yes, you're right. He's had a, he's had an association with Hollywood uh, literati with Shirley MacLaine and others over the years, and. Uh, with again, alternative medicine and different kinds of faith traditions, but you can't say the man's not resilient. That's one thing about him.
2: Are there certain areas in which you want to see a livened-up uh, politician, like um, the environment, or in you know, even campaign finance, where you would want to see someone? I
0: think, I think. I think. I uh, think whether it's Dennis Kucinich or someone else, I think that Ohio has traditionally been a state and poli-sci, people have written about this, it's an issueless state, meaning we say we have issues, but in many ways it's kind of the ins versus the outs. But I was, I've become increasingly aware, because I'm from the northeast myself, in Youngstown, um, of some data that recently were were brought to mind by researchers at Ohio State's uh, John Glenn College. And when you realize that places like, um, for all the things we see, places in the state that are prospering superficially, but when you realize the data show that since 1969, Ohio's average per capita income has lagged out of the nation since 1969. Then all this rhetoric about jobs and progress, the action agenda, and so forth, including things like Jobs, Ohio, and so forth, seem pale. They seem like their worries are not real actions for real people's lives and livelihoods. Maybe because we're in southeast Ohio we're more we're more aware of some species of poverty than otherwise, but you could probably sound the same kind of poverty in, in Cleveland, Youngstown, Akron, Warren, Toledo, uh, Ashtabula, as you, as you can in rural Ohio. And I think... Unless we widen the debate further, I don't mean showmanship. I'm just talking about saying let's get down to fundamentals here. A little twist here, a little tune-up here, a drop of three-in-one oil there is not going to really change things much, I don't think, for most people. And I think people are hungering for change, and they need change, and they want it, and they haven't had enough of it. And if rhetorically a candidate can make things go off-center a little bit in Columbus at the State House, meaning just not same old, same old, but change the terms of the debate, that's probably a good thing. I can say with that, well, I can say with fear of contradiction, but I'm not gonna admit to it, that um, you at the State House in Columbus, you have three great lobbies that control most everything, the banks, the insurance companies, and to some extent, the um, uh, utilities, a little bit less than before. And each of those has a, a hold on parts of our lives. It can be benign, it can be neutral, it can be bad. But if you don't have someone who's going to call people out when things are done that aren't necessarily good for everybody, you're going to have the same old things happening to people over and over. It's like um, Groundhog Day in a movie or something. The same thing over and over and over again. And I think a lot of people, and this may this may I not mean, explain the Trump vote um, last time around. I think it was more than that. But they're tired of that, and they want to see some real change. And if we're going to have same old, same old, then maybe we shouldn't necessarily think we're going to have issues in elections, but just personality choices. I'm not sure that answers your question, but that's kind of—I think especially on things like the cost of living, utilities— um, Fuel costs, uh, house sales, taxation, other taxations administered, and and tax cuts for people at the upper end of the spectrum economically, which is not going to do a lot for anybody else in the in the middle or lower levels of economic de- economic income levels in our state. Mm-hmm.
3: Would Would Ohio need a governor from if the state house is going to be Republican?
0: Probably, and I think that's so. Probably I, yeah, going to
3: happen. So would Ohio need a Democratic governor to help? create some friction. Well, that's a good
0: question. That's a good point. I think that's one of the arguments in favor of having someone who can use the governorship as a proverbial bully pulpit. One thing a lot of Ohioans have never considered, because they have better things on their minds maybe, mm-hmm. is that actually our state constitution makes the governorship in Ohio pretty powerful and uh, institutionally in terms of the power that he or she has. And if that is a deployed in a way that can make for change and levered, levered institutions but I think, again, we've had a Republican governors for 20, uh, 24 of the last 28 years, counting uh, Stur- uh, Governor um, Kasich's final term. We've had a legislature Republican in both chambers since 1995, but for two years, and the state Senate since 1984, continually. And I think as anything else, um, institutions need to be kind of combed out every so often or flushed or whatever you want to call it. And if a governor is a dynamo about uh, – Raising issues and mobilize public opinion, like uh, some have in the past, that can make for real change. Um, And I think of the two of them, they're both uh, the two major candidates. Uh, They're both intelligent people. They're both gifted people. Uh, It's a question of which one maybe wants to shake things up more. I can't say who that is at this point, but you can imagine that in some levels, in some respects, his record suggests that maybe Mr. Kucinich is more of a shaker-upper than Mr. Cordray is. But that doesn't mean he's better or worse. It just means that's his approach.
3: Right. That's just what his history has been, or at least how he's spoken. And then in terms of, if I can go back to, in your opinion, of the candidates, of the major candidates, um, and I guess this would be a more focused question or allow you a more focused answer once we're on the other side of the primary, but uh, who would would be a better friend if I would say to Southeast Ohio. One of the things that um, for those that praise uh, Governor Kasich, there are just as many who say he is not a fan of or not a friend to uh, smaller communities, to rural communities um, that um, he he would take. He takes from um, local government to uh, to the detriment of local government and to fill state coffers um, in a way that makes local government a um, bit weak or weakens, that weakens at least the financial end. So who's the opposite of that? If that's if that's a, a, a critique of the current administration, who, who do you think would change that?
0: Well, I think first of all, until someone has to actually face the task of writing a new budget, and of course our governors, when they take office in January, have to have a new budget ready by March 1st for the legislature for two years, and we don't know yet. I will say they both have basically... Um, blue-collar backgrounds. Uh, actually, Mr. Kucinich uh, grew up in fairly poor, generally urban poor um, environment. Uh, Mr. Uh, Cordray is from a part of Columbus or Franklin County, Gore City, which is considered kind of blue-collar, and kind of um, uh, I think his parents both may have worked with the um, um, developmentally challenge, I'm not sure of that, but he was certainly not living in high cotton down there, in that part of the county, and um, he is, in many ways, uh, an example of merit rising to the top in terms of his intelligence and his ability and his accomplishments, including being on Jeopardy and winning all those times, <laughs> going to Chicago Law School, which is a great law school, and so forth. But I don't know because, on the one hand, this county and other counties like it have been supportive of Dennis in the past, Kucinich in the past. And I don't know that local government fund money is the best index of the uh, of of caring for communities necessarily. I don't mean that in a cynical cynical way. It's it's one way to do it, although you can make the case that um, if we all went to more township and county board meetings, we'd see how money gets spent. We might think there's more money than you think available at times on the issue. But I think part of it is, and this was shown with President Obama in a way, I think those, those candidates who inspire a kind of hope for the future in people, can make a big difference. I want to throw something else on the table about this, by the way, and this relates to this as well. I think it's remarkable. We look around us in the United States. We had a woman governor of Kentucky in the past, a woman governor in uh, Michigan in the past. I'm not saying one gender or the other is a better governor or a lesser governor, but for heaven's sake, it seems that it's almost medieval at this point in the state's history, more than 200 and some years of statehood, Not to have had, uh, as a nominee for governor, uh, a woman by a major party, if I'm not mistaken at this point. I just throw that in because I think also the political style sometimes that a women office holder can bring to the table, again, if this is stereotyped, I apologize, more conversational than it is confrontational or something. Again, it depends a lot on whether you're talking about, say, for example, uh, the former governor of Alaska. I realize that and others, but, (laughs) but we haven't necessarily had all the voices at the table we need to have. It's also a remarkable fact that up to now in Ohio history, we've never had a black person elected by Democrats to statewide office. We have had some Republicans elected to statewide office. And I think until we—I am a firm believer that the more voices there are in a given discussion about things, the better the product's going to be eventually because they have different perspectives on life. Uh, It's just natural. And I throw that in because, again, both major candidates, the Democrats, um, have got basically very— Real world experiences, either middle class or blue collar, or in Dennis's case, real urban poverty. But they've also been very successful professionally. I mean, over the years, Dennis wasn't a lawyer, but he's been an office holder and lecturer and a speaker, and he's a very bright guy. Mr. Cordray is a very gifted guy intellectually as well as a lawyer, and his wife's a lawyer. I think she teaches at Capital Law School, as a matter of fact. And of course, I mentioned I should have mentioned again that Mr. Cordray was on the uh, head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a, a, an essential now being, I think. Weakened uh, agency to help protect ordinary people. But as far as southeast Ohio goes, I think you can make the case that any candidate who understands that a what I call monocrop, meaning a one resource extraction economy, is not a long term answer to the region's difficulties, is the better candidate. I can't say which of those people it is at this point, but it's like anything else coal mining came, took the coal, left. Others did the same thing, other minerals. I think what's going to happen with oil and gas is much the same because that's the history of the industry. And so that person who addresses the issues of the region best would be that person who kind of knows what it's like to live in a small town that doesn't have much going on, that needs jobs and opportunities for people and also needs some diversity in its industry and all the rest of it. I can't say who that is. I don't think it's fair to say necessarily that uh, that uh, Governor Kasich is indifferent to it anymore. Ted Strickland was from uh, over in Ross County or in... Um, in, um, in uh, Scioto County I knew the region quite well but some things have to get through this whole miasma of different interest groups and different political agendas and also different industries with different needs um, and I don't know that I could say anyone would be better or not for the region as such I can say again the more voices at the table the better the output will be and I think that's important uh, we have
2: the biggest issue and in fact the only issue issue one the uh, redistricting issue coming up yeah, and you have spoken at length, certainly in the columns, about it. Um, for those that don't know yet, it's um, redistricting would be rejiggering all of the the representative areas in the state. Yeah, and the ballot itself says to replace it with a process with the goals of promoting bipartisanship, keeping local communities together, and having district boundaries that are more compact. So how do you think that plays into getting all the voices on the table? I
0: think that's a very good point. I think that, I think that g- gerrymandering or gerrymandering, whichever you prefer, is, uh, has been a baneful influence, especially with our congressional delegation. If you've seen the map, it's clearly as absurd in places, um, especially in, well, all over the place. Um, the legislative map has not been much better in a way, but I have to throw out something else that's about that, is that parts of rural Ohio have lost population. And also, I'm not entirely sure of all the reasons, if you look at the list of members of the legislature, say from 1991, even maybe 2001, you'll see more rural Democrats, or almost no rural Democrats in the legislature now, there was always some in the past. And they kind of brought a perspective additional to that of just uh, of otherwise, uh, what I would say, suburban or ex-urban life. A congressional redistricting that's fair can make a big difference for the region, I think. Um, it, in many ways, it's, the maps themselves just tell you a tale of absurdity, just looking at them. The House uh, and Senate for the legislature, um, I think it's going to be better than it was, but at the same time, you see these uh, anomalies, uh, uh, these districts where someone's from nowhere, he has some money or she has so many little blobs of territory that you aren't quite sure where he or she's actually representing and so forth, which creates a real problem of focus on local issues, uh, particularly issues of school funding, for example. Uh, Issues of opioid uh, addiction and opioid abuse. Uh, Issues of, I think one thing that gets lost a lot is children's services issues because of the family breakup because of poverty as well as because of drug addiction breakup of families and so forth. And um, the most illustrative thing I ever had, I have to tell you this anecdote, a student of mine one time said to me that he really liked the new congressional map when it was done. With all due respect to my students who are among the brightest people in the state, I was taken aback that he thought the congressional map was something interested him. I mean, I was glad, I was edified, but this inspired. I thought, this is, this is, we've reached the new Jerusalem today, you know? <laughs> and I, said, I knew there had to be a punchline. I said, well, why do you like the new maps? But he said, because if because Congressman Cybers' district the way it is, he said, when I'm in Athens drinking at a bar or in back home drinking in the bar, I'm in the same congressional district when I drink. <laughs> I don't go anyplace. place. And, but what he, but, but he said in a way, in his own way, in a folklorish way, was telling. I mean, do we have that much in common here with suburban Columbus? And I'm not knocking Columbus, but we do, I don't know that we do necessarily. Right, right. Uh, And certain so parts of Columbus, right. not even the whole... You can make the case we have more in touch with, say, Marietta, which is hmm. Congressman Johnson's district and, and so forth. Right. Yeah. And I think that's an issue of, of, of focus as well. I don't know that the ballot issue is going to make a radical difference, but it's certainly going to make it um, a more obvious process um, for dealing with these issues. And, um, I mean, it's just... There's just all kinds of absurdities about the current thing. I mean, we have a district that runs from Amish country to Lake Erie, when you have Jim Jordan's district reaching from around Champaign County and wrapping around Dayton, and includes Oberlin up in Marion County, mm-hmm. which I think was someone's idea of kind of being puckishly humorous because he doesn't get any votes in Oberlin, or what I expect him to, because it's just done to maximize inkblot effect, the number of packing voters of a given party into a district. And that may make for some real better diversity, rather. Um, without, I hope, of course, the other side of it is, and Republicans point this, it is the case that the current map does, in fact, provide the, the choice for people to elect two people of color to Congress in the state. Until 1968, when Congressman Stokes won, we had nobody of color ever in Congress in the state. Then we had somebody, whether him or um, a congresswoman Fudge or um, others in that district, um, and... Um, And now we have Congresswoman Beatty in Columbus. And so at least that's true as far as it goes. But is that necessarily the the final word on the map? No, I don't think it is at all. I don't think it is. And actually, Columbus being as comparatively um, housing segregation, there's not, I don't think in my appellate of the data, is not as intense. I think Ms. Beatty could probably win whether the district is drawn a certain way or not in the district. Um, Greater Cleveland's a different breed a cat in some ways about that. Uh, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones also was a great congressperson, and we lost her terribly young. She was a wonderful person as well. But that does provide that right now. But is that a fair trade-off? I don't know that it is or not for people in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. I mean, like down here.
2: Yeah, and you actually said in one of your columns, if I can quote you, the key to fashioning a bipartisan General Assembly redistricting package will be winning sign-offs from the legislature's black members. Can you explain a little bit what that means, why, why it's so important to have the members that they are now having signed off on this.
0: Well, you asked me if I think it would improve things, or?
2: Yeah, well, how you feel about it, and why you specifically say this well, is a
0: key I think part it. of it. Oh, I, well, I think part of it, first of all, I, mean, I think part of the reason was I think they were afraid of the courts getting involved, mm-hmm. as they did in Pennsylvania, which was stunning results, which I think were probably good results. Uh, the courts saying, we're taking control of the map. You guys and women can't do this right, um, which... In Pennsylvania, they couldn't. It was a grotesquely partisan. It makes ours look like something out of civics class. (laughs) I think it will. I don't want to think it's going to change things overnight. I mean, remember, uh, Ohio has—I love the Thomas Flynn definition from 1960. Ohio has long been a competitive two-party state, which Republicans enjoy the advantage. There's some evidence that Republican growth in the state is increasing somewhat because of a loss of industrial union jobs. Auto workers, steel workers, coal miners in the unionized mines and so forth. And so it may be, it's not going to make a huge change, but clearly when you have a, a map that gives you 66 of 99 Ohio House seats to one party, it's um, a little bit skewed. Um, and likewise, our delegation of Congress people, when you have 16 seats with only four of them held by Democrats in a state that until the last time around was very competitive, in which President Obama carried twice, President Clinton carried twice, Jimmy Carter carried once, and so forth, it's a competitive state. So those were kind of Indicators something wasn't quite right there, so I think people are more skittish about the courts for one thing getting involved, and so I think either party will be somewhat careful about this. Uh, but you know the best the best friend of most politicians is the status quo. I'm not knocking office holders; many of them are wonderful people and do great things and have good aims. But the status quo suits them just fine. Sometimes they know the district, they know who's there, what the addresses are, the boundaries, you know, zip codes, the whole deal, uh, who the clergy people are, or the teachers and the other civic leaders, and. So they know they're. They know that. They don't like the unknown. Um, but I'm hopeful that this will change things for the better representationally because I think that too many communities are just not really spoken for adequately in Columbus or in, in Washington, obviously. An issue that uh, you've talked about in
1: your columns and that's been brought up during the election cycle is uh, campaign finance. Yeah. Um, there's been talk of who has raised what money, how much, where it's come from, but – uh, I'd like to ask you, in this day and age when I could theoretically tweet something out and have millions and millions of people see it, how much impact does money have on the
0: success of a campaign? That's a really good question. I, 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 I've always been skeptical of of it being decisive. I think it can help a lot. I think that if a if candidate doesn't have any kind of message that resonates with their voters, I think it, he or she can't uh, really go very far. Uh, politically. Um, I, I the, the paradox is, of course, in a way, in some ways, campaign money is easier to trace than it, than it used to be because of computers and because of state reporting requirements. Um, on the other hand, um, you can't make a citizen pay attention if he or she doesn't want to. So reporting on this sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. And people don't know who's supporting which person and so forth. And a good example, of course, is the uh, is the recent controversy over payday lending, in which you have an industry that uh, wasn't even legal until 1995 in Ohio, um, and it still isn't legal in some other states, uh, spent lots and lots of money to kind of make sure they can prevent its hopes, regulation to make a difference. I think sometimes the real campaign finance issues aren't so much the presidency or statewide election issues as much as they are the legislative candidates, what policies actually made in the legislature or in Congress and so forth. Um, I wish I could express this better I think part of what happens is that whatever you are frankly a coke or you are a Hollywood liberal whatever that term means, it's supposed to be incendiary I guess, you want to be with a winner basically and I think in some respects what the money really shows is is a kind of a, a voting system that says this is who the powers that be think is going to win the election and if he or she wins then he or she's going to be friendly with me because that's why I'm going to do that um, I can't give you empirical evidence of that, but that's just my, my, my instinct about it. Um, now, it's also true, though, and I mentioned this in one of my classes, that as a, as a people, and especially Ohioans, we elect hundreds of thousands of people to office, township trustees, judges, sheriffs, all kinds of people everywhere, and, um, and county commissioners and boards of supervisors, and so consequently, in one sense, it is essential to get your name out there because we expect people to do a superhuman job of knowing everything about every office, and they just don't. They can't. they got too much else in their minds to put, get the kids to bed at night and make sure they've got food on the table and all the other normal things people do. So it, it helps to have some money out there to get, to get someone's name out there in general. And again, it's more with local candidates and local or regional candidates than statewide or the presidential candidates. By the time November rolls, well, you know their names too well. You're tired of hearing them, probably, but not necessarily serve, necessarily serve with other jobs that have a lot of power, like judgeships, for example, which have enormous power, like county officials, which have a lot of power in our state especially, unlike some other states, and members of the legislature. So I'm kind of an agnostic about the power of money. I, the, it, I know I'm in a minority on that because I come from an area that's kind of politically attentive. Northeast Ohio is kind of that way. You talk about it around the table and all that sort of thing. But there's also no question, that since Citizens United, when you have uh, essentially shadow money, you don't quite know who's paying for what, exactly what the message is, then you have a problem of astroturfing, you're giving a false grounds, well, this 50 million Ohio or whatever the number is, this is that, think this about that, well, you don't know that, but again, people get bombarded with messages all the time, and I think the more that happen, the more confused we get as people on everything, from that to which movie to see, or which baseball team or football team is the best one to follow. Um, does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, uh, I'd like to add on to it. Uh, this question: Do you do you think the the money in campaign finance, uh, you in your hypothetical theory that it's a sort of a voting system to see how to see who the powers that be stand behind? Is that a way? Is that another way that Southeast Ohio and rural areas get left out of the? That's a good Political question. Pro- I, I think that,
0: that may be, yes, because obviously you have you know, fewer voters and also fewer, less money. Now, on the other side of that is, and in a way this is for southeast, not for maybe southeast Ohioans, the oil and gas industry and using you know, fracking and everything obviously has great, great power in the state house. I mean, you have an anomaly Republican governor. We have our, our severance taxes on oil and gas extraction are ludicrously inexpensive. I mean, they're almost unbelievably low. Here you have a conservative Republican, although some Republicans say he's not conservative, uh, John Kasich saying, let's raise these taxes not even that much. And the oil and gas crowd, which is up and down I-77 in many ways, says, no, we think that's wrong. It hasn't happened yet, has it? No, it hasn't. So you could argue that either way, though, because if you aren't having good revenues from the source of a local resource, which, again, I know goes to Columbus and it gets redistributed, That's fewer resources for the state in general and probably for this region of the state as well. Um, I never understood why it was such a mandarin contest with them to fight relatively minor tax because at some point down the road, someone's going to get really ticked off and want to have a major sock-in-the-jaw type tax. You waited all these years, you refused everything, so now you're going to have to pay the price. I don't know why they did that, but they have, even though their industry is booming like crazy. Yeah, I think it's it's also a question of environmental protection in this part of the state. By that, I mean the Southeastern... I'd say the whole quadrangle from Youngstown Youngstown maybe to, to Portsmouth and then everything east of that line. How do we protect our forests and waters from these extractive industries? And I think that's another issue about they fight regulation on those things, and that's been the story of all these coal mines and acid, uh, acid streams and everything, things we've all been fighting down here for years now, and with some success, but not enough resources. That's part of it.
2: When we return, we'll ask Tom about how the two major parties will get their message out in the new political climate.
4: Aaron was talking, this question about money and how, what kind of um, voice money can, to, can bring to the table. And we have all this, voters have all these things coming at us, right? right. All this noise. That's right. Right. Um, and it's hard sometimes to separate out all the noise. Right. How do the parties? What is the strategy for the parties to do that? In in terms of for the Democrats to sort of like to gain a more foothold in the state to, to have their voices heard to voters, so they can they can get more of a foothold in the state. And for Republicans, sort of this th- these voice of the, the sort of the the Trump supporter Republicans and sort of like the more mainstream middle of the road. Uh, Republicans were right. trying to be more bipartisan, a bit more practical. How, what what are the strategies for each of the parties in terms of— What are the factors in that happening that way? Or wh- how do they— how, how do they reconcile these how, things? How do they reconcile? How do they um, get their message across to the voters? Um, well,
0: part of it—that's a very good question because part of it back to the thing I was talking about conservation, you know, actually, the American conservation movement was fundamentally a Republican movement with Teddy Roosevelt and others, and wise was used to resources, and that kind of got lost by the, by the wayside. They reconcile it by, first of all, ignoring differences sometimes within their own party. I mean, obviously, there are, in fact, pro choice Republicans on the reproductive rights issue. Uh, obviously, there are, in fact, um, uh, the Republican chair of Franklin County is a gay man, so there are people of, and that's, not, that's only one example of many people who are in. Um, and positions of responsibility in political organizations, what they try to do is find what they have most in common. And most in common right now is opposing the other party, You know, saying you have to get rid of this candidate or he or she's going to bring down the decline of the West. We'll have Kim Jong un or something running the state or something. Um, so that's part of demagoguery. Uh, but that's a serious problem right now with both parties because of the whole, on the one hand, the kind of um, Mrs. Clinton, um, Senator Sanders differences of opinion about perspectives on where we go from here. And the other side of it is um, on the Republican side between what I would call, uh, with respect, um, kind of absolutists on various things, especially about matters of conscience and matters of maybe how one lives privately and one's private life and matters of public spirit and how we approach um, issues. I, I think that in some respects, um, the Republicans have the sharper divisions, but they seem to have a better time reconciling them when it comes down to November or something. Um, there's no question, but Mrs. Clinton's, for example, her vote fell off compared to what it had been for President Obama and so forth uh, over the years because some Democrats just stayed home because they said the heck with it. Now, you could say, did the party offer them alternatives maybe to get them to go out and vote? Maybe not. But I think that in the end, my experience as an observer of state politics has been Republicans tend to coalesce more easily because in some respects they're the minority party to begin with and they have fewer numbers. They have to have other voters to get their policies enacted and get into the legislature, get into Congress and so forth. Um, Democrats tend to be a little bit more um, spirited about some things and see things as matters of, uh, matters of um, oh, I would say, absolute social justice, absoluti- absolutism, which is a good thing in the, in the realm of um, religion and morality, but not in terms of practical politics. I think that's one reason why, again, I mentioned earlier we have nearly as many rural Democrats. I mean, a lot of rural Ohio was very Democratic, John Glenn got votes everywhere, for example. Frank Lausche did. To some extent, Dick Celeste did all over the place. But over the times, uh, the policy, the party was seen as more of a party of the, um, the, again, a silly expression, wine and cheese and Hollywood and all that. At the same time, Republicans managed to portray this kind of, I carry a gun, I wear blue jeans, I wear camo, but I'm not on Wall Street hmm. selling stocks and bonds. I mean, does that make any sense? I think that's part of it. It's, it's kind of how you present yourself. On the other hand, it's also the case that governors such as Warnovich and, in fact, Kasich have been pretty decent managers. And I mean, I have to say they have been, my opinion. Because most of the state government's about managing, making sure you have a balanced budget and all the rest of it, and getting the budget passed on time. And that doesn't hurt either. Um, uh, historically, I happen to think it's a good thing that parties like the Democratic Party stand for some things about uh, human rights and um, opportunities to all people. But I also realize that those issues carry to extremes. Again, how do you say liberty can be extreme? It's either liberty or it's not. I understand that. But I'm talking about the perception of things. If you're morally—I write about things all the time and Absolutist. Maybe your neighbors will feel they're not worthy of, your being, worthy of being part of the same coalition or something, and they won't be part of it. Um, I think the same old, same old, as I said, isn't going to get it anymore. And in some respects, again, Republicans may have a retrogressive point of view— wanting to go back to the past but it is a clear point of view you know they Mm -hmm. want people to you know they want things the way they were in some respects and they're not going to be that way again but democrats to be more amorphous about that and i think people like a a message that says that's i think it's part of it the president's not a nuanced person is he there's no nuance in what he says i'm not saying that's a good thing but i'm saying he's not it just right but you know mrs clinton again i'm not deifying her but she's an she is a person that there were always ways of having qualifications on policies. Well, if this, then that, and so forth, we have to have a data to do... And I'm not saying she's a better or worse human being. I mean, that's another... that's for someone else to decide. But nuance is something liberals like and voters don't like, because it means things are too complicated. And right. I'm not talking down to anybody. Again, each of us even in this room has bills to pay and friends to, and relationships to, to maintain and, and all the rest of it and, and so forth. So we have tons of things on our mind, and if 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 it's a, a, a an easier decision on something, then it's going to be an easier way to vote, I think, on some things. That's just my opinion.
3: No, we see that because that idea that, especially at times when people feel like things are too hard, so that idea of compromise be, it feels like it needs to go out of the window because we don't have time to compromise. Well, that's and also you're weak. That, it's wishy-washy. It's, right, you know, it's seen it's as like, weak, and no, this yeah, is what it is. And that's we, not what
0: guys do. You do right. You know, you I know. mean, metaphorically.
3: Right. Those those daddy issues come up Laid strong.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, and on that, um as we're talking about, you know, the, the health of the parties within the state and these elections heading into primaries, heading into the right. into the midterms, are you seeing or have you read or heard from people in terms of protest candidates are is that happening? You know, after twenty, after the, after the twenty sixteen November election, um, you know, certain people were outraged, and and the, some of the conversation was: we need to run our own candidates, we need to groom our candidates, uh, groom candidates, and run them. Are we seeing that? Or in really, in terms of viable candidates that are? Um, are not in the ruling the currently ruling party.
0: We may see it on some local instances. I don't think we're seeing it statewide at all. And I think part of the reason is, which is what third parties point out, is that in some respects the system, quote unquote, the framework for elections in Ohio is kind of geared toward a two party setup, which right. has been for since the Civil War basically um, a two party system. Um, and there is lots of room. You know, the parties don't really stand for. I mean, they're not ideological particularly. They may say they are, but they aren't. And they're just different groups of. People of different economic backgrounds, different colors. Uh, I don't think that's happening. No, and I think it could happen theoretically, but you know, you have to have organization to do things. I mean, it'd be if I were to start a political party in in, in Athens uh, that had a certain platform that others agreed with, which would be a miracle given my own eccentricities or uh, whatever. Uh, you know, you have to have things like regular meetings. You have to have money to pay for things like mimeograph—well, m- copying uh, flyers. You can't just say, well, I think I'll have a meeting tonight. You know, it has to be something that's regularized and routinized. And the existing parties have that down. They have routines, and they have scheduled right. this and they scheduled the- that, and county chairs and all the rest of it, precinct committee members and so forth. Without that kind of starting from scratch—I mean, if you start from scratch, it's awfully hard to duplicate something like that if people are very motivated— Social movements have done that, but they've usually adopted as part of the prohibition, was basically Republican Party incorporated prohibition into a statewide platform, and therefore it wasn't a separate part. There was one, but it didn't mean to make prohibition happen. Democrats, to some extent, incorporated the progressive movement and some elements of social democratic politics as well, with the New Deal and everything. But in some respects, the parties are kind of agglomerative. They, they kind of absorb you over time. I mean, obviously, at one time in our country... The idea yeah, women's suffrage was considered to be almost um, uh, absurd or communistic or something. Interestingly enough, the Republican Party was the one that adopted it more readily than Democrats did. That's for historical reasons. But they, instead of having a separate women's party, which there were individual examples of that, those things got incorporated into the parties by by that. I mean, obviously, over many years been, there were talk uh, political leaders of of color over the years who were being ignored especially before the civil rights era, they're taken for granted by Democrats to some extent, by Republicans as well. Let's have our own party. Like make, let's make. Well, have our own leverage in terms of bargaining. But it, the parties absorb things um, in some respects if they're allowed to do that. And I, I I think that's what's happened more than anything else. And that's part of the thing with this democratic between what I would say the Clintonian and the Sandersian or something point of view. Among Republicans, I think right now, what's perceived to be the hard right is kind of – in, in the saddle. But again, we don't know a long time between now and the next presidential election, and, and foreign policy is always a factor in American political movements and decision-making about our country's external threats or perceived external threats. And I think that's another issue that people, people get, you know, we've all been in kind of collective shock about ever since 9-11, about security threats that we have been, and without asking too many questions about policing, we should ask more questions. And also, as I remind students, we went at war in Asia Pretty much since July or December seventh, nineteen forty-one. One way or the other. And I see the other day we know we now have troops in Niger, in, in Northwest Africa. Oh wait a minute! I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what, do we know about this? You know that that's the kind of thing that happens when we're talking about things like what the president's tweets are. I'm not saying we shouldn't report that stuff, but I mean, there's this thing this machine keeps going and rolling. You know, mm-hmm. sound like dealing with. Uh, the university computer system. Sometimes mm-hmm. you know, no matter what you do, it's going to do its thing at a certain time, and that that lets the status quo go unhinged or keep going without any kind of restrictions on it. I wish there been attempts to have you know independent candidacies and third parties and so forth. But in fact, uh, we haven't had an independent state legislature as such for like the last one was 1950. I happen to know this for you don't want to know why I even know that. It's kind of sad, probably a 1950 session. And um, we haven't had anyone in Congress from Ohio who was a true independent for probably as long or longer than that. And so people talk a good game about that. But the reality is the two-party system seems to absorb other people's voting power in time.
3: And I'm curious about that because in this election and well in this, the elections this year, the central committee members are up. For each mm-hmm. party, and so the state central committees and right. the county com- and I wonder, is that where you plant if you're trying to change yes. that? You 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 work within the system. That's that a very are, good point. That That's are working.
0: Yeah, right now, as you may know, there's been a, a kind of a below the radar battle to reclaim the Republican State Central Committee for the what I'd call the Kasich faction. A number of candidates are out there in my congressional district. And they're underpublicized usually, unless you're really an active party member. And the campaign finance, there's no campaign finance reporting for Congress, for central committee, state central committee, local central committee, county central committee races. And there are a number of places in which people who are more on the side of, let's say, anti-Trump, uh, are challenging uh, the committee's takeover a few years ago. When in effect, and this is unusual, it kind of got lost by a lot of people. When the governor's own chair of the state central committee was replaced by Ms. Jane Timken. Jane, Ms. Jane Timken who was essentially a pro-Trump a pro, uh, Trump person and so forth. And uh, the committee members are elected, for each, Congress- each state Senate district, rather, and um, only the true faithful seem to ever know who they are, although it's on the ballot paper, or on the ballot screen. And there's a battle going on in the Republican Party right now on that very issue. And we'll see what happens, because oftentimes only the insiders even check the results to see who won and who lost. Uh, there's an interesting race going on over in... Uh, in the district that encompasses um, I can't think of district number but it goes east of Columbus former Attorney General Betty Montgomery is on the State Senate committee now she said at the time uh, when Mr. Trump was running I believe this is a memory now don't call me to this that she would not support him uh, she could not support him she would not support him she's being challenged by former legislator Joy Padgett from Coshocton who was among other things head of a group called Women for Trump in Ohio and um, it's a lively contest I understand at uh, the party members are the ones that pay attention, but uh, those kinds of contests can determine the direction of a state central committee's attitude toward presidential candidates especially. And for many years, the governor always had, any governor, had control of his or her central committee. And um, this one's a little bit different, and um, we'll see what happens. On um, Those are races I want to look at after the election's over with next week and see what who won and who didn't win those state committee seats because that will be a clue maybe to 2020. And which candidates would do well in Ohio or not, right? right for the presidency,
3: right. Um, any your take or any thoughts on any of the um, congressional primary races?
0: Uh? Not really that, but I did see. I did see uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is uh, his managing editor is an OU alum, uh, Kyle Kondick, uh has a new um, a kind of assessment out. I think it's just coming out the next day or so which indicates that they believe, or they think now, that there are several congressional seats in Ohio that are contestable. That is, the Republicans hold them now. One is Steve Shabbat's district in Cincinnati, although it includes some other suburban areas. Uh, The other may be this open seat where Congressman T. Berry resigned to become head of the Ohio Roundtable. And there's an open seat there, including um, it incorporates uh, parts of Franklin County. It was Congressman, it was Mr. Uh, Kasich originally, way back when, Parts of Licking County, uh, parts of I think of Knox County, um, Richland County, Licking. I said that already. Fairfield, and parts of Columbus, and you have a, a kind of a free-for-all going on up there in that district. But depending on how much damage Republicans do to each other, Democrats may have an opening there to win that seat. I would be surprised if it happens, and they say that themselves. But it is not a monolithic circumstance right now. Uh, for example, Mr. Tiberi, for example, supporting um, uh, State Senator Troy Balderson from Zanesville. And the uh, Mr. Jim Jordan is supporting a, a young woman whose name I've forgotten, unfortunately, Republican candidate for another Republican candidate for the nomination. And so it's become a proxy of sorts up there, just like you asked about, with two different points of view about the party's future. Um, but those kinds of primaries, it's the same day as the regular primaries, so they're filing for both the long-term and the short-term, you could say, nomination. And... Um, It may be decided in Delaware County by the votes of Republicans who are probably not as conservative as Republicans in some other counties in the area. In the Shabbat case, um, there's a very popular county treasurer whose name escapes me right now, um, running against him for that seat. And that seat was always within reach of Democrats, depending on the candidacy in the year. But that could mean Democrats could pick up two seats in the state, which would be— Go away toward it, making it more equitable in terms of the breakdown of the 16 seats, with only four being held by Democrats now. Maybe go to total of six possibly after the election in November.
3: I was just gonna say, thinking, and then pushing forward again going into November, I'm thinking of the lone statewide Democrat, uh, Sherrod Brown.
0: That's interesting. You know, I was uh, I was just talking about that with somebody, uh, somebody, a student, about just talking about political stuff. I think uh, uh, I think uh, the primary for to uh, the Republican primary to oppose Mr. Brown is somewhat uh, uh, taking our prisoners. Mr. Renese, former congressman, and Mr. Gibbons, uh, a self-made uh, business person from to Cleveland, fighting it out. Here again, you saw maybe just in the last couple of days, Senator Rand Paul has endorsed Mr. Gibbons and not uh, Mr. Renese with a seat in Congress. Uh, it seems to me that all else equals. Senator Brown's probably in pretty good shape. It's too hard, to, too soon to know. I want to point out, though, with the exception of John Glenn and um, Howard Messenbaum— And also the first Bob Taft, Ohioans don't always give their senators more than two terms. I can just tell you, I can't say there's any reason for that, but that's what the record shows. But it seems to me that, you know, Senator Brown has always been someone who is skeptical of trade deals. And that's obviously almost an issue that the president, for better or for worse, I mean, who knows if he knows much about it, but he's articulated opposition and questioning about trade deals. Uh, Senator Brown's been a very much of a consumer person and a lot of issues affecting prices and things for individual people's lives, and so I think he's probably positioned pretty well issue-wise uh, to do pretty well. All the more so because former uh, because State Treasurer Josh Mandel, who might have been his strongest possible opponent, is not running after all for the nomination, and so we'll see what happens uh, after the Republican uh, uh, nominees pick next week. But I think at this point, one has to give Senator Brown an edge. I'm not saying a huge edge. These always close up a lot toward Election Day in November uh, about being reelected to a third term uh, in Ohio as one of our senators. That'll be interesting because I guess conceivably the Senate could become tied or at least become one vote Democratic next time around, which could give him a committee chairmanship or something like that, which could really help the state out.
1: As a way to wrap up our time, uh, I want to touch on – a column that you wrote about the importance of getting out and voting because it can come down to a single vote. You yeah. you, you looked at over the past five years at close races mm-hmm. that came down to at least one vote. Can you elaborate on that and just kind of uh, express the importance of uh, getting out and voting?
0: Well, there is. I, I know there's a radical critique, and I'm certainly not a child anymore, but I grew up in the 60s. There's a radical critique that voting is in some respects, a, a puppet show or a, a shadow play or something. But it does make a difference. And the Secretary of State's compiled a list of all the different places. I was looking at a map today, by the way, of um, results from um, the race for president uh, in uh, two years ago and a race for um, attorney general between Mr. DeWine and Mr. Cordray in or 2010, rather, when Mr. DeWine won. And I noticed there was some—this is by precincts. It's a map some people do, professionally do maps showed— and there were some maps that it was either red or blue by precinct. And I saw some checkerboards. And there are precincts where people do tie for the presidency or for the governorship or something like that. I think it does make a difference. And um, Brian Reif used to say about, uh, uh, about Democrats, he said, when Democrats turn out, we win. And that's probably true. Bigger turnouts help Democrats, all things considered. But it works the other way, too. Republicans are more dedicated, but they tend to always kind of be the ones that go and don't miss elections and so forth. It does make a huge difference, especially in a system in which we have a winner-take-all. The person with the largest vote becomes the elected official. Um, when you think about—I know this sounds mawkish—people around the world who have fought and died to have the right to vote. Again, I know it sounds like it's patriotic speech day. It's not in my life. Then I think it shows all the more so that the precious responsibility to go and do that— and especially because it's easier than everyone in Ohio to vote. It, you know, it's never been as easy as it is now. I remember years ago before they had uh, no-fault absentee voting, one condition used to be that you had to uh, go out, be out of the county on Election Day. And a friend of mine who was a very scrupulous woman would take the outer belt, I said when you went to Delaware County and make a U-turn and come back to Franklin County. She was out of the county that day, maybe only for five seconds, but she, was, she could vote absentee that way legitimately. I mean, I never got challenged on it. And so there's no reason someone can't vote very readily and easily in this state. A better example sometimes for people, especially around here, we have school levies and school issues on the ballot. Those oftentimes become very close. And I think those are other times when we have, unlike many states, we have lots and lots of control over taxation as individual voters. You'd be surprised how much control Ohio gives its voters over compared to other states. And so I think it's all the more reason to use that right in a way that shows how important it really is to us and to our communities high votes do happen, and, and close votes. Oh, we have votes that are very close in terms of uh, having to have uh, recounts and so forth. And I think it um, there's every reason to vote and not many reasons not to vote. I understand the idea of saying, oh, this is all a shell game. There's all this, that, and the other thing. But on the other hand, I still find it hard to say, well, someone doesn't take part, how they can complain about it later, the results. That's just human nature, it seems to me. Uh, I just wish that there were more choices and uh, I'm not being PC. I think that we have a long way to go and Having genuine diversity in our ballot, a balloting in the state of people of color, people of different gender identities, and so forth. And when that happens, there'll be, there'll be almost no reason at all to justify saying this is all a scam. we have representation of people of all points of view out there represent us at, at different elections. I mean, you know, it's, a good example would be um, again, not that uh, this isn't the same thing as not voting. Would, the Athens School Board just went through a very arduous process of deciding on a school building plan, all kinds of points of view about it. I wonder how many people, I don't know how many opposition opponents they had, they just skipped the school board ballot maybe the last time. So this happened. Oh, well, it's just one of those things. And I've really made a difference in how those decisions are made about things like that. And um, the city council on various issues as well around town. Frankly, in this town of Students more, it would more be a different city. I'm not saying better or worse. It would be a different city, though. voting can make for social change. It isn't just a ritual, I don't think. And um, that's why I'm... I've never missed an election since I had to wait till I was twenty one to do it. I'm not saying I'm a virtuous person, I'm saying maybe I'm just an obsessive compulsive person. <laughs> but you can't complain much if you don't take part in the process, it seems to me. And I wish everyone would do that and get out there and again, people having fought and died for this right around the world and they still are doing that, fighting and dying for that right makes it all the more important to us, I think. As that sounds romantic, I'm romantic.
2: Can't end any better than that. Thank you, Dr. Sattis. We'll be interested to see after all of this comes out and see what your interpretation yeah. is. So yeah. thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, everybody. I'm a bit of rambling today, but that's my that's me. <laughs> no, We, we appreciate we always, and value it. It's always a privilege to be here. I'm very flattered with you that you're interested in what I have to say.
3: Absolutely. We'll, we'll see you. be
0: back again.
4: 457SEO is produced in the WEB Telemix Studios. Adam Rich is our audio supervisor, Aaron Payne our editor, and Nathan McGuire created the music. I don't know how you found this episode, but you can find past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and WEB.org backslash listen.
3: And you can follow WUB News on Twitter and Facebook.
1: I'm Atish Baidia.
3: I'm Susan Tevin.
1: I'm Aaron Payne.
3: And I'm Allison Hunter. Thanks. Peace. Peace.